Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today, employment lawyer Sunira Chowdhury talks about new workplace tensions as more COVID restrictions are removed. Dog trainer Amanda Quinn has some tips for getting both you and your dog ready for your return to the workplace away from home. And Dr. Cassandra Lane Dealwert, incoming president of BC's Orthopedic Surgeons, tells us why her group is a astonished by the BC government claim that our surgical backlog has been cleared. So let's get started. Mighty darn nice to have you with us this soggy Saturday morning, the last one of March. My gosh, what happened to this month? Holy smokes, it's not over yet. I know we got a few more days, but it's it's just whizzing by. 6.33, a pleasure to welcome our next guest back to the program. She is an employment lawyer with a company called Workly Law in Toronto and is a good friend of this show. Sunira Chowdhury joining us from the big ass city this morning. Sunira, good morning and welcome back. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Well, it's good to have you back with us. There's a story out of the courts here in B.C., uh, it's labor law, Sunira, that I wanted to get your comments on, okay? This is pretty typical, and then we'll sort of broaden out and take a look at the bigger picture. But this is a case of a guy who worked for a construction company here in B.C. for about two and a half years. Uh, He was laid off temporarily because of the pandemic, but was not recalled to work. And he was terminated without cause and paid two weeks as per the company procedures. However, this guy gets his backup, Sanira, and he, uh, he sues the employer, claiming 35 grand in damages, including five months of damage for reasonable notice, and wanted his third payments uh, uh, included in all of that, too. So the trial judge awarded him four and a half months and a reasonable notice and agreed not to deduct his CERB. But when the tri- case went to appeal, Sanira, the judge ruled the trial court had erred in not taking the CERB payments into account. And this account says an issue that's come up recently in many Canadian courts while examining wrongful dismissal cases during the pandemic. And of course, it was 2000 bucks a month. So in this case, the appeal court uh, uh, just they decided to uh, to uh, eliminate the CERB uh, payments from the award. Uh, is this is this sounding familiar? Because apparently it's happening quite frequently across the country. Well, most employees that were laid off, of course, took advantage of CERB in Canada during the pandemic. This isn't new. I think most of your listeners um, would either have applied or know someone who applied. The question is whether or not you get the advantage of both your wrongful dismissal damages on termination and serve. Exactly. And when it comes when it comes to employment law though, we have to keep in mind that the the point of employment law is to put you back into the position you would have been in had you not lost your job. Okay. And in no case really would you get serve and your salary. So while we've been seeing a bit of a flip-flop in the courts about whether or not you're entitled to keep your CERB, um, it's sort of akin to EI. In most cases, when an employee gets terminated, if they apply for EI and end up getting wrongful dismissal damages, they have to pay back the EI. A lot of employees don't know that. So you might rack up big EI payments over six months. If you end up getting a wrongful dismissal um damage award, your EI is going to have to be repaid to the government. So I'm really not surprised to see a CERB repayment uh, award being coming down from the uh, Court of Appeal right. here because, frankly, this is following what we've seen for 
uh, EI insurance for decades. Sure. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what's going on right now, Sanira. You've had masks off in Ontario for a week. Uh, masks come off in British Columbia when the kids go back to school on Monday after break here. Uh, the restrictions are being removed, some would say far too rapidly, but that means a rapidly changing workplace for many, many of whom are coming back for the first time in many, many months. So as an employment lawyer, dealing with these changes, and they are coming fairly quickly after two years, what's the, what's the most common complaint you're hearing these days? You know, Sterling, it's all about the hybrid workplace. It's all about having to come back, whether or not employees have to come back or not after they've been, uh, some of which have been able to work remotely with no problems for years now. So employers making that request for employees to come back on what days, employees are very, very reluctant to see any um, return to the office. They love the efficiency of their lives now. They love the fact that they're just not micromanaged. So the biggest sort of pushback we're seeing is whether or not employees truly have to come back after uh, being able to work from home. And employers find themselves having to make a business case to have employees return. Why they need it for their business? Is it a client-facing issue? Is it a collaboration issue? Are there elements of your job that you simply cannot do from home? Um, But employers are finding that they have to make a case to have those employees coming back. And to your point uh, earlier, Sterling, when it comes to masks coming off, people are frankly a bit scared about taking public transit, Mm -hmm. you know, getting back into into close quarters with coworkers, um, not having to mask and the risk of taking COVID home with them. We know that COVID rates are still high, uh, whether or not, you know, employers are still mandating those same PPE requirements, safety requirements. Again, it's a bit of friction that we're seeing in the workplace, especially this month. No kidding. And uh, in our industry, Tim and I have to wear masks when we're in the building here because we're federally regulated and uh, those are still federal rules. So it's still very much uh, at play in our workplace. Sanira, there's an Angus Reid poll out yesterday. And here's the headline. I quit. 23% of employees say they will quit on the spot if forced to return to the office full time. Uh, this is brand new, just less than 24 hours old. Do the findings reflect what you're hearing on your phone and in your email box? Absolutely. We see the threat of people saying, uh, if, if I have to come back, there's a uh, a plethora of remote work jobs that I can apply for online, um, no questions asked. But I think the issue that employees are not considering is how will remote work careers evolve? If you if you um, kind of brand yourself as a remote worker only, mm. what we know for sure is that employers have not thought about the promotion or the compensation scales, the bonus and incentive scales for remote work. We even don't really know how performance is going to be evaluated remotely. So the fact of the matter is, and I wrote about it this week, actually, because Google in an all-hands meeting just a few days ago saw a big backlash from some of their employees concerned about compensation and competitive compensation, many of which are now being paid a bit less for moving out of bigger markets. So Google made this big stand if you moved out of San Francisco um, to remote work your salary went down. So I think remote workers have to consider here that even though you may not want to go back to work, there might be repercussions in your career that are going to stick with you for a long time, including your chances of advancement, 
your chances of increased pay, compensation, promotion, and frankly, it will really change the way your career evolves if you decide only to work remotely from here on out. That's a very good point to make, Sinira, and I'm glad you took the time you did to make it because from an employer, a purely employer perspective only, those people who refuse to come back to the workplace for whatever reason, doesn't matter, are seen by many employers as being, quote, not team players and being offside with where the company's direction is long horizon going. And that, to your point about consider the future before you make these important decisions now, uh, you, you don't want to be cutting that yourself out of the workplace or out of, out of your own future uh, because of a, a, a reluctance to at least come to some kind of hybrid solution. Yeah, unfortunately, Sterling, the old adage, out of sight, out of mind, can really be a strong factor in employment. And when you are not in the workplace, when you're not collaborating, when you're not client-facing or co-worker-facing, you may just miss opportunities you otherwise would have access to. You know, we hear a lot about success being, you know, 90% of success is sort of showing up and failing to show up might have strong repercussions. The the fact is, though, while remote work seems to work for a lot of the workforce, for those that are ambitious, for those that might be wanting to elevate in their careers when it comes to um, moving up in terms of trajectory, you might be missing those opportunities. And I think employers are seeing that friction now. We do have a labor shortage. I think that labor shortage is going to be going away relatively quickly. And remote workers might be placed in a separate class subconsciously, but we might be seeing that sort of two classes of employees, those that are coming into the office and those that are working remotely. Mm -hmm. Uh, A very, very well-known Vancouver broadcaster, one of the most famous uh, British Columbia broadcasters ever, Frosty Forrest, who used to be the morning man here on this radio station, told me decades ago, you know... There's a lot to be said for just showing up every day, <laughs> which he did for close to 50 years. But the point, his point being simply, as you just said moments ago, too, I mean, there is that physical presence thing. So as a lawyer and an employment specialist, would you advise particularly young career-oriented people to be flexible at least to the point of trying for some kind of hybrid accommodation? I think being open to being in, in the workplace is absolutely to your advantage, especially if you're trying to uh, stake your claim in your industry. Failing to do that will put you in a box, unfortunately, because, you know, there is a, a, a certain, you know, je ne sais quoi about, about magnetic, charismatic people, and that might not translate very well over Zoom sure. or very well over the phone. And if you have those special sort of, skills, especially when it comes to relationship building, building foundations, a lot of that can't be done remotely. And I think that special touch is something that we're going to see as being a real premium sort of commodity that is going by the wayside, and we might be undervaluing it right now. So I think, especially if you're building your career, uh, showing up is is a big part of the job in a lot of industries, whether or not um, people will think that's an old school sort of um, view to take, I think employers, we're, we're even seeing the big employers, we're seeing Google, we're seeing Facebook, we're seeing Microsoft, all suggesting that collaboration is super important to what they do, uh, even though they started the pandemic by suggesting that remote work was going to be a big uh, part or push of the pandemic. I think those days are behind us now. 
big employers want to see employees back in the office just as much as little small and medium-sized businesses want their employees back in as well. Indeed. Well, Sanira, we're mighty darn pleased you found a few moments to uh, to return to this program. It's always a pleasure to have you on board. Thanks, Sterling. Have a great rest of your weekend. Nice to have you along with us on this soggy Saturday morning, the last one of March already. Holy cow, what happened to that month? Uh, So yesterday, the B.C. government announced, and we had it all over CKNW yesterday, and we're going to carry on a little bit with it this morning. Uh, uh, Their um, resolution to uh, the the, the station uh, coming in on First Avenue off the freeway this morning, 196.9. All this ridiculously expensive gas, a lot of it having to do with taxes, provincial government of British Columbia says, no, we're not doing anything with taxes. But tell you what, we'll cut every driver in the province a check for 110 bucks. We'll put it on ICBC's tab, and that's the end of it. So uh, the question this morning remains, is a $110 rebate from ICBC enough? I was watching Global News Hour last night, and one guy's at a gas station. He's got the thing. He's got the thing in, the, the pump in the car, and, and the, the, the cameraman, the reporter, asks, well, what do you think? Is 110 from ICBC enough? Guy says, it's not even enough to fill this truck up once. No. What do you think? Is this the appropriate solution? Uh, it's 604-331-BUZZ. 604-331-2899. What do you think about all this? And as you contemplate that, and keep in mind, it's a family radio station. you got to keep it clean as we move on to, uh, well, this is an interesting conundrum that many Canadian workers are going to be facing. In the days and months ahead, as more and more of us return to our workplaces, more and more of us are going to have to do so, leaving a new furry friend behind. Millions of Canadians have adopted creatures over the course of the pandemic. It's now been two years. So now that we've uh, invited all of these furry friends into our lives and bonded with them pretty much on a 24-7 basis for quite a long time, so we decide to go back uh, tomorrow or Monday. Uh, So how's that going to work out? Amanda Quinn is with us this morning. Amanda joins us uh, to talk about separation anxiety. She's with Dumble Dogs Canine Performance Center in downtown Winnipeg. Amanda, good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning. It's good of you to join us today, Amanda. And and this whole business about, I mean, I'm not too far off the mark when saying millions of Canadians have changed their lives over the last couple of years and invited uh, furry creatures into them. This is a reality that any SPCA person anywhere in the country will acknowledge, correct? Yeah, I guess all over, like, um, shelters and just breeders were not able to keep up with the demand. I guess people were at home and said, hey, I have some time. I'm going to bring home a a dog, a cat, or or another animal. So, yeah, for sure. I don't know the numbers, but definitely a lot. Indeed. So in many cases, Amanda, people have got, many of us grew up with, with pets in our, in our childhood. So it's, it's uh, to, to have a dog when you're an adult is, is kind of a, the way it's always been. But for many people, especially in these weird times of pandemic and all the strange stuff that's happened with them, many adults for the first time in their lives uh, took it upon themselves to uh, get a dog or a cat. And, that, and so the attachment has been kind of profound because here you've gone and rescued or purchased this creature and brought it into your home 
and it's been, you and the creature have been together pretty much daily uh, for two years. And all of a sudden, it's time to go back to work. You recommend a kind of a buildup. If you know this is coming in your life, uh, your dog or cat isn't going to understand anything except that you're not there all of a sudden. So, Amanda, walk us through what you would suggest by way of weaning the animal to the idea of separation. For sure. And I, I think this more pertains to dogs than cats. Sure. I'm not sure cats will even care <laughs> if your owner is gone. Fair um, point. Fair point. Uh, but ideally, um, if like weeks and weeks before you are heading to the office, you should make sure you're leaving your dog for a shorter period of time, you know, an hour at first, then two hours and three hours um, until you can build up to that longer time away. And in a perfect world, you'd already have been doing this for those two years your dog's been at home with you Um, because you don't want the dog to get super anxious that you're not there and cause damage. I personally like a kennel um, because if the dog is going to, you know, rip your couch apart or get into electric cords, it's going to be safer for your dog to be contained to a kennel or at least a room that is puppy proof. Ah, so now there's a big difference here. And, and, and let's just take a moment, Amanda, because it's very important to separate out dogs from puppies who are, to say the very least, considerably more impulsive than more than older animals. So can we talk about dealing with, because puppies are a special case, aren't they? Uh, puppies just tend to not know as much, right? So <laughs> um, that being said, if you didn't put any work into your puppy and it is now an adult, I wouldn't even say your dog is going to be better behaved. So I, working at uh, Dumble Dogs here in Winnipeg, I have definitely seen adults uh, come in. They're one, two years old, and they're just as bad as a puppy, only now you have the size of an adult. Sure. Um, and you can still work with an adult just like you can a puppy. It's obviously better to get that groundwork in as a puppy, Um, but our center is just getting so full. Our classes are filling up because people need help. Right, and and so that it's not a bad thing, for example, in, in a case of a pet owner, particularly going through some important changes in his or her own life, getting back into the workplace, getting reconnected, all of that, and there's the little matter of the dog. So to, to get a little outside help and, and maybe do some, is it a, a behavior class that, uh, that, are the, uh, that are being so vigorously booked up these days? Yeah, so we offer uh, like a whole bunch of different classes, and there's going to be um, dog performance centers in your area sure, as well. Sure, of course, of course. yeah. Um, and then there's also a dog walking service. So when I had a puppy and I was working 9 to 5, I did have somebody come midday to my house to let my dog out because a puppy or a young dog may not be able to make a full 8-hour day sure. or plus traffic, right? So it could be 10 hours. Um, So there's other services. So you just can't assume your dog is going to be fine for a long period of time. Uh, Some dogs will even attack that kennel, rip the kennel apart, escape the kennel. Uh, There's, you know, every dog is completely different. Mm. The more work you put into your dog, the better they will be. For the most part, you know, separation anxiety can also be a little bit genetic. Um, and, you know, fighting genetics is a lot harder than behavioral. A reminder, the article we saw on Global News about you and why you're with us this morning uh, included uh, some advice from the Winnipeg Humane Society, Amanda. They point out that an anxious dog isn't disobedience. It's having a panic response to your absence. This is why this mysterious, weird, destructive in some cases or bizarre behavior occurs because you're not there. That's what you mm-hmm. have to deal with, right? 
yeah, and it's hard to get them to focus. So um, that's why ideally it's, I prevent it from happening. So if you have a new puppy at home, make sure you take the steps. Um, I did have a puppy. Uh, she's eight months now. I was working from home the whole time. I still put her in a kennel for half the day. Uh, I was home. I ignored her. She got to learn, oh, I don't need to be beside my mom all day sure. long. Um, so now I have set myself up for success. That being said, eight hours is still a long time. So I would have to build up to it, even though I started putting that foundation in. So lots of online resources out there, lots of local resources. My dogs want to say hi. I, I, I can <laughs> tell. In the background. Good morning, doggy in Winnipeg. Yes. <laughs> so lots of resources. Get online, find out what, to, what best suits your needs, and begin the process of separation as soon as you can. Make it easy all around because it takes two to tango, doesn't it? It does, yes. Amanda, thanks for this. Good of you to get up on a Saturday morning and join us here in Vancouver. We appreciate it. No problem. It's 9 a.m. here, so I wouldn't have done it at 7. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I appreciate your candor as well. There's Amanda Quinn from Dumble Dogs Canine Performance Center in Winnipeg. Uh, Yet start early. It's all about training. Rinse and repeat. They love routines. It is an 8 degrees Saturday morning on the west coast of Canada. Sterling Fox with you. Uh, our, our next guest wrote a letter recently to Health Minister Adrian Dix. And let me just quote a section from it. The reason for this letter and our request for a meeting is to communicate serious concerns on behalf of our association regarding comments made recently about having caught up with 100% of postponed operations from the early pandemic. This in no way reflects the experience for most orthopedic patients or surgeons in the province. In fact, we continue to struggle with access to operating rooms. We've not caught up and continue to see wait lists grow. We're bringing this to your attention urgently as we nervously see these trends continuing with detrimental impact to our patients' mobility and mental health. The author of that letter is the incoming president of the British Columbia Orthopedic Association. A pleasure to welcome Dr. Cassandra Lane Dealwert to the program this morning. Dr. Dealwert, good morning. Welcome. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. I want to apologize first for the sound of my voice, but uh, what it means is I've been able to advocate quite a bit for patients in this province this past week. Well, I appreciate your your, uh, giving us a little bit more of a go and and stretching those vocal cords to the max, Dr. Dealwert. We do appreciate it. Uh, The British Columbia government has been making much hay out of uh, this business of of, of all of those surgeries that were uh, essentially postponed or pushed around scheduling-wise by the pandemic have been made up, and uh, you just vehemently disagree. Tell us why. It's it's really hard to track the data. So in, in surgery... It's very easy to track when a patient has been uh, placed on the surgical wait list and then has been canceled or postponed. Sure. But if you are never given that operating day, for example, I typically will operate one to two days per week. But if I'm not operating at all, no patients are coming onto my wait list in order to be postponed. So there's a lot of data that we need to find and track in order to really create the appropriate picture of what's happened in British Columbia. Does it also, um, uh, uh, orthopedic surgery, we're talking hips and knees and those sorts of things, and typically the medical community, particularly the Health Services Administration, tends to think of all of those procedures, doctor, as 
elective, which means they're not urgent. We can, you know, push them around, whatever. And you say in your letter, the reality is orthopedic surgeries are life transforming. Bit of a Absolutely. gap there. It's, yeah, there's a big gap. And I think elective is the wrong word to use because that implies that the patients have a choice to get this operation. And sure, there are some of them that are a choice, but for a lot of these patients, it's not a choice. They cannot get around even their own home. They cannot do the things that they used to do. Some of them can't go to work. Some of them become addicted to narcotic pain medication. Yes. To me, that's not elective. That is not a choice. You get their operation. If they're able to get their knee replacement or the hip replacement, they're walking within six weeks, mm-hmm. even shorter for a lot of patients. And that's for some patients, they call it life-saving. Interesting. You know, doctor, just anecdotally, I, I, I know a person here in the lower mainland with a chronic pain situation who became addicted to painkillers because the wait time for the corrective surgery for said uh, orthopedic ailment was uh, close to two years. And this person yeah. actually became hooked on opioids and had to go through an entire withdrawal process on top of being barely mobile on a good day. This is not an unusual case, is it? No, we see it far too frequently, and, and it's, it's really hard to watch because when you meet these patients, that's not the case. We're, we're tending to get to see them a little bit earlier than we used to as a surgeon in our offices, but by the time we actually are able to get to the surgery, they're a completely different person. Mm-hmm. And so you've taken a person who is taking Tylenol and Advil and who could recover and get back to their life in two to six weeks. Sure. And now, now they're going to use more resources. They're going to have to, their, their length of stay in the hospital is harder. Their post-operative pain is harder. And it's exactly like you just said, we now have to find a way to get this person off of their op- opiates, which is a challenge in and amongst itself. So let's talk a little bit about, and get you, I'm, go, I'm going back to your letter and, and looking at your numbers, Doc, and you talk about, for example, uh, and, and recognizing the government has a point to be made in terms of a reduction of wait times and so on. You talk about other surgical procedures, gynecology, ophthalmology, neurosurgery, and so on, a net reduction of wait times anywhere from six to as much as almost 35%, whereas in uh, orthopedic uh, cases, the wait time has grown by almost 65%. Again, an enormous gap. Is it all about elective? It's, it is about the, the uh, false understanding of what orthopedics is. Now, for example, urology cases, thoracics cases, a lot of these are cancer-based operations, and you cannot postpone those. Sure. And so they, those continued on. Uh, there are some that... Some surgeries actually got a surplus of operating time because they were taken away from the elective ones. And so this is, this is part of the push of the BCOA is to understand the disproportionate cuts that, were happen- that happened over the pandemic to orthopedic surgery and how do we recover from that. We cannot recover by just getting back to the status quo because that won't recover anything. We need more resources, more time in the operating room, and more ability to treat patients in order to ever get back to pre-pandemic levels, which were still weightless. Yep. Now, Dr. Uh, Dilbert, the uh, federal government announced uh, yesterday, or I believe the day before, uh, a $2 billion uh, new money, of course, borrowed, but nonetheless, $2 billion available to the province to to accommodate these, uh, provinces, to accommodate this backlog of surgical procedures that they all have. So here in British Columbia, our share of that $2 billion will be a couple of hundred million dollars. Will that 
direct cash infusion into our system make any difference vis-a-vis orthopedic wait times? I was so happy to see that announcement because the, the task at hand was so large when there was no extra money. We were going to have to figure out how to, how to find time and place for these patients in an already overexhausted system. Mm-hmm. Now we actually, it's, it's, it's rare in Canada to have extra money to accomplish this, but it still doesn't mean we have the answer for how to do it. We, the whole point of the letter is to be part of the table, part of the discussion, having heads of all of the organizations in British Columbia, general surgery, urology, anesthesiology, orthopedic surgery to come together and say, here, we have $150 million for surgical catch-up. What's the best way to use this as mm-hmm. opposed to a top-down approach? You know, if you have the people who are, who are at the front line seeing these patients suffer, there's a, there's a bigger voice at the table for them. And again, I'm going back to the letter you sent to Minister Dix a few days ago, uh, talking about uh, receiving calls and emails from uh, colleagues in the uh, orthopedic surgeon profession, uh, stating their astonishment and disbelief with the statements that were made about surgeries being back on track. And you go on to say, it has heaped pressure on an already pressured and frustrated professional body, reinforcing perceptions of orthopedics as the low-hanging fruit for cuts and cancellations it's always the first to go isn't it it absolutely is because it's a lifestyle uh, style of operation and it, it it's understandable when you know for the first phase of the pandemic none of us were upset about it because sure. this is the, this was the reality but after five continuous waves of, of covid for two years there has not been one single policy change to say how can we actually address this appropriately. Every single time there's a new wave, there's a new wave possibly coming here. Are we going to get cut back yet again? This is what we have to figure out. We have to figure out if COVID's here, if we continue to have waves, we've got these growing wait lists, how do we manage this? Yeah. Uh, typically, for a person who discovers that he or she needs a new hip, that happens at the uh, the family doctor visit after much complaining about chronic pain. The doc says, yeah, you might need a new hip. I'm going to book you an appointment with a specialist. Well, there you go. There's six months easily to see someone who's going to tell you you need a new hip and then going to book you in for an operation that could take anywhere from 18 to 24 months. Is this typical? It, it can be across the province. It does, it does vary from, from uh, hospital to hospital. What I, what I will do for orthopedic surgeons is give them a little plug currently because we have brought down what you call the wait one, which is uh, for the, from the family physician to the orthopedic surgeon. And I think we've done a very good job at that. But the problem is, is where we are handcuffed, where we have no uh, power in decision-making is the wait two wait from time to see us from time of decision to surgery mm-hmm. to getting into the operating room but for, pe- for people most people it ends up the entire journey ends up over a year yeah uh, final question to you doctor uh, the uh, in some surgical procedures for example eyes and other things they have dedicated hospitals here in, in the lower mainland where we have enough hospitals that you can do that and for example out in maple ridge they do pretty much all the eye work for for the for the area is there a thought to creating a sort of a central orthopedic surgical center that uh, could again take some of the pressure off the, the 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 individual hospitals and move them all into a more central location would that be productive or not i think that's a fantastic idea and that's the, those are the ideas we would have to 
sit down and actually discuss the pros and cons, what the cost of that is to the system versus, you know, having these people out of work. These are, these are all ideas we need to bring to the table and brainstorm as a group. How do we do this? Because you're absolutely right. Hospitals are still at 130% capacity in some places. Yep. Nursing staff have left the profession and, and the, the hospital capacity right now, I don't know how we're going to accommodate it, but we need, a, we need a voice at the table to, say, to talk about it. Dr. Dealwert, if and when the minister responds to your letter, to you and your association, uh, we'd love to have you back. Uh, and once there's some dialogue going back and forth and perhaps take a reading on progress, would you mind? I certainly hope that is the case. Indeed. Thank you very much for doing this this morning. I appreciate the opportunity to speak on behalf of my patients. It's our pleasure entirely. Dr. Cassandra Lane Dealwert in Kelowna this morning. She's the president-elect of the BC Orthopedic Association. That letter to her minister, Dix, written just a few days ago. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live, 6 to 9, weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.